Okay. But that's okay. So, should I start? Yeah. Hi, and welcome to Off the Books, a new radio show that looks at how books change the way we think and interact with the world around us, politically, socially, and culturally. Some episodes will be with regular book clubs talking about a book that they love, and some will be with writers who will chat about the books that have influenced them. Think Desert Island Discs, but with books. The first, this first episode, we're going to be discussing Astragal by Albertine Sarazin. I'm Maddie, and with me is Femi. Hello. Kai. Hello. And Jess. Hi. Um, we haven't been able to let you know the book ahead of this episode, but for future ones, we will. Um, Astragal is about Anne, a young woman of 19, and her life on the run after escaping from prison. When jumping from the prison wall... Anne breaks her ankle and is left helpless on the roadside. She's picked up by Julian, an ex-con with a motorbike, who takes her to his mother's and from there to a series of safe houses. Anne and Julian fall in love. However, their relationship is confined to the small windows of time in between Julian's long absences and the cramped rooms that Anne is hiding in. As Anne recovers from her injury and gains greater independence, Julian suddenly seems more absent than ever. The course of true love never did run smooth, and this novel is a testament to that. Semi-autobiographical and written from her own prison cell, Albertine Sarazin's first book is about freedom, love, and growing up. It was made into a film in 1968, and again in 2015 by Bridget C. So you can watch the film if you haven't read the book. Which we assume you haven't. Um, Albertine, we're going to tell you a bit about the author now. Albertine Sarazin was a French-Algerian writer... Born in 1937 in Algiers, she never knew who her biological mother was, but was put into care and given the name Albertine Damien by social services in honour of the Saints' Day on which she was found. She was later adopted by a family who lived in Aix-en-Provence in the south of France and baptised Anne-Marie. At age 10, she was raped by a member of her stepfather's family, which deeply traumatised her. After several attempts to run away, she was placed in a girls' reform school in Marseille, which would entrench her with an anti-authoritarian and rebellious attitude. She excelled in her studies, particularly in French, Latin and music, playing the violin to a high standard. Escaping from her reform school, she moved to Paris, where she became a sex worker and small-time criminal. In 1953, a failed armed robbery led to her imprisonment in Freinet Prison, the second largest prison in France. She escaped breaking her ankle in the process, and met Julian Sarazin, who she was married to, and with whom she would continue to live a life of crime. And it's these experiences that form the basis of her first novel, Astragal, which we're reading, or which we've read and are going to talk about today. It was published in French in 1965 and translated into English in 1967. The success of the book allowed her and Julian to move to Montpellier, where she continued to write, but she died tragically and suddenly in 1967, so the same year that her book was published in English, due to complications during kidney surgery. And she was only 29 years old at this time. Um, Kai, I think you wanted to talk a bit about the title of the book, Astragal, and what it means. 
Uh, yes, that sounds great. Thanks, Maddie. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely read most of the book having no idea what that word meant, uh, except for roughly when she was explained to by the doctors. Well, yeah, that's the moment where you're like, oh. Kind of, kind of, like, oh, but like, okay, so uh, I think it appeared in the mid-16th century from my research, um, a Latin from the Greek root astragalos, which means the ankle bone, and it also refers to a molding, uh, like some sort of Join it, like join it, a joinage in architecture, no? Yes, yeah. So I, I think there was something along those lines. It's, it's some, some, some something uh, hard that you probably like shape stuff out of. I'm not sure. Um, it also, I think it also. So it just means the ankle bone. Um, it also was a uh, dice, another word for dice, and it's um, a plant in Chinese uh, Oriental medicine that is like. Uh, sort of healing and but here I actually uh, <laughs> it reinforces chi and uh, promotes promotes discharge of pus and growth of That's new so tissue grim. <laughs> 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 but kind of interesting because she breaks hers and like so much of the book is about recovery and yeah. how um her her bones fix themselves she talks a lot about her foot being dead for a long time and this like dead limb and it's going to be cut off and then when it might be amputated she's like i would rather die than lose my foot i'm going to die whole i'm not going to live with like a little part of it so all of these different meanings about breakage and coming together and being whole and being fragmented yeah i mean especially sort of going on to how she was like impaired for for so much of the book the fact that the book is titled such a specific bone as opposed to I broke my ankle like mm. <laughs> my leg is, is fucked up <laughs> you yeah. know she's like it's the specific bone in my ankle that allows me to bend my foot while I'm walking and putting my feet in front of the other like which you probably don't think about but then when you break it it's like fucked and you really get like you learn the name of that bone because that one yeah. tiny little bone is the ho- whole reason that you can never walk. run again yeah. um I feel like that kind of relates quite a lot to who Anne is, like her right. identity, because the book is called Astragal. She kind of starts to talk about herself as if she's just this bone, but I don't know. What did you, what did you guys... I, I feel like she's really obscure. I I found it difficult to to really know what she was like. She was. We knew that she was like tiny. She was four foot ten. She wore loads of black eyeliner. She's mixed race. She's like super preoccupied with her appearance, quite coquettish. She's a sex worker. I think um, Patty Smith describes her as a stick of dynamite that in exploding might not kill, but would certainly maim. So she's like pretty fiery. But um, I don't know. I didn't really get a sense. I found it difficult to know who she was. Yeah, well, I, I kind of imagine her sort of uh, with like her pack of Golwars uh, smoking and um, a bo- yeah, I think so. Gold was mm. maybe, but you know, it's like a really stereotypical sort of uh, French, French cigarette cigar. that you smoke. And I don't know, inc- yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Patty Smith just uh, she didn't smoke, but she used to carry around a packet of Gold because she thought it was cool. Actually, when I first started smoking, I googled uh, trendy cigarettes. <laughs> And Goldwaz came up, so they were the first cigarettes that I smoked. <laughs> Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, not that cool. 
Um, and yeah, and like drinking, and then also just incredibly funny. Like she's just like a re- got a real quick. She seems to have a quick wit, and um, is telling j- jokes. I think with us, like when yeah. she's when she's writing. Um, yeah, and then also kind of imagining her where she is when she's writing it. Like, is she in a prison cell, which Albertine Sarazin was when she wrote it? Um, and who she's talking to yeah so I don't know there's, there's so many things and like, as you said she's small she's petite she's mixed race um, yeah and, then, and like her names change quite a lot through it she calls herself Astragal um, but maybe you want to talk um, yeah so in my my, my, my uh, tangential research she um she she had a lot of names and and also namelessness is sort of a theme throughout the book um you actually you don't really know her name until quite quite a while mm-hmm. in isn't it like you it's for a while she's just kind of like ill narrator like yeah. who, who doesn't really know nameless what's going narrator yeah. um what she her, so basically she her parents sort of disowned her so so she was like given up for adoption when she was a child and then this is the writer the, Albertine the rather writer, than the character who we're going to have a very difficult time distinguishing yeah. from the character and so at a at a certain point she um she also is di- she's disowned by her parents um and she doesn't have a name anymore mm-hmm. she doesn't have a last name anymore and she goes to well, they name her in reform school, don't they? They name her Albertine in, in reform school yeah. after the, na- the day of her saints. And then she mm. goes to um, a correctional home and she's renamed Annick, uh, which I think is probably where Anne comes from. Um, an- Annick, Anichka, maybe? Anichka, maybe. I, I so it's know. like so this like kind of like, like... a lot of Russians in her prison in France. Like <laughs> identity kind of confusion seeps into... Like from the writer's real life seeps into the narrative. Yeah, definitely. And then she's also um, she's also a sex worker. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is not what she went to prison for, which you don't know until you read the foreword. What did she go to prison for? She went to prison for armed robbery. Mm. A right. botched arm, ar- armed robbery. Um but it doesn't say whether anybody was actually <coughs> killed. It seems like most of her crimes are victimless because when she has the when there's the robbery later in the story, nobody is hurt, are they? No, no one's hurt. No. Yeah, she seems I mean she she obviously she breaks her ankle within the first two pages and then she becomes quite a helpless frail character and there seems to be a sense that like she can't do much harm and she's constantly she um. Right, but that's actually not her character at exactly. all, isn't it? Um, oh, right. So the author, when she was arrested, she when she was arrested for armed robbery, I think maybe when she was rearrested after she had escaped, because she actually did escape, she said uh, at her court hearing, "I have no regrets, and when I do, I'll let you know." <laughs> <laughs> like in complete understanding of the fact that you know. B- feigning or performing remorse would That's probably so like cool. help her out in some way um but she didn't give a fuck like she's really a badass do you think do you like her do you like Anne mm. do you? I do <laughs> I uh 
I think that she might be difficult to be friends with. I find her relationship with other women really interesting. So obviously she has sexual relationships with women, but they seem to be a little bit um, uh, sort of, you know, like with Francine in prison, she's just sort of taking care of her. I don't know if it's if it's really that she's attracted to her. But then, so she stays with this woman called Annie, who I think she really loves. And there's a really cute description of of their first night uh, when they, they have some wine together. And uh, she says kind of, you know, at night after dessert, we talk until the bottle's finished. Annie and I, two women deprived of love and splendor. And she just goes on to describe how they have this incredible camaraderie. But then at the end of the book, when she finds out that uh, that Julian, so this man that she's in love with, she finds out that he met another woman when he was, when he, she would have preferred, I don't want to give the ending away, but uh, when she would have preferred that he would have come straight to meet her, he met another woman and she has this crazy, it's not a crazy rage, it's understandable, but she talks about wanting to kill her. So I think that, she she's young and she's got uh, insecurities and I think because of that she would probably be hard to be friends with if you're not going to help her if you're a threat then then she's maybe yeah. not going to be a good friend it, it's like what you were saying Kai earlier about <clears throat> every she like reads people everyone is typecast they're either like a slut or a mother or a bore she's constantly um, quipping about people behind their backs and being like that you know they're just a chump i mean big word chump (laughs) (laughs) she does call them that and i think in 1965 it held more weight i mean not only that but people are also snipping behind her backs like you know obviously the whole book is so skewed from her perspective but it really it seems like the the relationship that she has with these women where she will so easily turn on them is two-sided you know you had Nini in the first in the first sort of hideaway who like was super domesticated wasn't she like the domestic goddess and and then you had this whole argument with her and Annie initially where she calls her she she says that Anne is a whore and a slut and a Mm. tells Julian her house isn't a brothel um so it's her mistrust is not totally unwarranted, is it? Well, yeah, she's, I mean, she's relying on people so heavily. So because <clears throat> she's escaped from prison and she's essentially crippled, she needs to rely on this whole network of people that she doesn't know and that don't know her in um, to basically, you know, save her. But I think her relationship with women is really beautifully characterized by this quote where she says i had learned to love girls to gauge them the women i had left up there behind the walls which is the prison had turned me away from simplicity from even the most superficial friendship and i think part of what's difficult with her relationship with each of her keepers so she moves first julian takes her to his mother's house then he takes her to a friend's Pierre and Nini um, and Nini sort of waits on her and is the 
the new maternal figure and also actually takes her to hospital and lies to the hospital and says that she's her sister in order to get Anne treated. And then she's taken from there... Back, no, back to Pierre's. Mm-hmm. And Pierre, this is really interesting, Pierre suggests that she takes on sex work in order to earn her keep because Julian pays all of these people to look after her. And because... Pierre suggests this Julian removes her from that space but bearing in mind that not not to excuse his suggestion but she has come from sex work and actually later in the book she turns to it again and I think we can talk about this later but it's interesting about what you were saying Kai early, what you were saying earlier Kai that you thought she really wanted to do it and I wonder if it's more you, you saw it as an empowering right. um, I, I gesture, mean, and I see it as more like a sort of an, a necessity for, for her circumstances. Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, preface. Like, <laughs> I, I want to see it as an empowering, as, as an empowering role. Like, mm. um, she depends on all of these women, and because, sorry, my voice is now going. <clears throat> <clears throat> because um, <clears throat> there's. An agenda, I think she feels like she can't trust them and she can't get close to them. So she doesn't like superficial relationships, but essentially all of these relationships are superficial because they're economic. Like, they're being paid to look after her. So however close she gets to them, she can never feel fully close. Um, I wondered if we wanted to move on and talk a little bit about race as well and how that figures in the book. Yeah, yeah. well, I, w- I was just wanted to add one more thing was that as like the I think really the sex work it becomes more it, it is kind of her way of having some sort of economic independence and that comes as her foot gets better in a way so um, there's uh, I was just going to read a bit about how like she's walking around the streets and like obviously walking something that she can't do for the majority like the first half of the book she's being carried from she says my life consists of being carried from a bed to a car deposited deposited in a series of beds um and so yeah so um yeah this is a bit where she's taken up sex work again she says me i walk i don't hang around on the street i don't have the time i don't like the sidewalk and i don't seem more a whore than anything else i use this method because it's quick it requires neither a schedule nor much practice, or so little. I fended off the paws of the pimps, the sneaky tricks of clients since I was 16, and nothing much has changed since then. I'm only really afraid of cops, having not the slightest identification to show in case they demand it. Um, and yeah, just going back to the, the idea of like, do, do we like do we like Anne? And I, I think I kind of admire her from that because she's so, like she's just not afraid of anything. <laughs> and I think that's, well, there are some things she's afraid of, like cops, for example, but there's just this... Or, or is that her, like, putting on a voice? You know, like, she's, like... I feel like she puts on these attitudes. She's like, I'm fine, I'm really pushy, whatever, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. But, like, I don't know, maybe... She, I don't know. I kind of... I, I believe that, like, that is, maybe she is saying it to herself. She's performing a version of herself in order mm. to to feel like confident enough to do the things that she has to do in order to live but 
if that's the version she wants me to see, then I'm fine with that. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of it is the sort of bravado of of youth. And as you say, Femi, I think she's sort of trying to convince herself that she's really strong, which I think is is what makes a bit at the end when she shows real vulnerability. It makes it so much more moving because she's not keeping up that pretense. When she cries with Julian, so to give you guys some context... Mm. um, she discovers that Julian, despite it being like they, they, them living in a very promiscuous world, she discovers that Julian has another significant lover, which like really upsets her. And she bursts into tears and he says, I've never seen you cry before, which it's like just a, a moment of quite intense vulnerability, which is unusual for her. And I guess there's a lot about like what how maybe you needed to be as a woman in those times like and maybe as a woman today like the kind of guises that you need to dress up in or like believe in your own bravado yeah, yeah the, exactly the different faces you can take on. did yeah which i suppose in a way is kind of like relates to the fact that she is mixed race and she's um like albertine sarazin was also mixed race and she I think part like part of the reason that um part of the reason a lot of men are, are attracted to her is they see this exotic side of her they they see her as exotic in like I guess quite a white society at the time in Paris mm. um yeah and and then you sort of see her I don't know but like she doesn't really uh refer explicitly to her race very often in the book so the moments that do really stand right. out she she basically doesn't even mention it until the end um when she she has a, a passage about her she goes on on vacation and she uh, her her ultimate goal of her vacation is to get as tan as possible she's just like I'm everyone's f- ultimate goal yeah <laughs> but she knows that she will achieve it you know yeah. what i mean she and um you brought up uh, yeah so she so she wants to be as tan as possible she thinks that basically like being her most bronze self will make Julian love her and she like mm. has all these really negative metaphors about how she looks like when she's pale isn't mm. it she like the paleness to her just like symbolizes her sort of trapped can I read a bit yeah, I, yeah, read it. yeah so she says um, shake yourself girl you're black enough your teeth have whitened in your smile and when they approach you people will ask do you speak French mm-hmm. Julian won't find the pale child of that first night I will be a negro and beautiful and I will please him like a new woman. Even the scar on my foot, which has gotten tanned, my asymmetry. Pfft. I am a charming mulatto who limps a little, that's all. No one will see the white triangles left by my bikini. No one will know that I come from the shadows and I'm going back into them. And in 1965, it's so significant that she is speaking so positively about like being, you know, mm. uh, being, being mixed race and like at a time when it was... It could have been the whole plot of the story, couldn't it? Yeah. Like, it could have been the whole thing was about how she was gay or about how she was black, but it was... But neither of them figure as huge strands. They're just moments when they... And they're used to, like, serve another passage where she talks about Julian. So like yeah. that passage that you just read out, Femi, is kind of... She, used, she talks about her race in order to talk about Julian and her love for him. And I feel like um, there were some also other interesting bits where she sees she like seems her attitude towards her race 
seems to be related to how other people see her. So she says, Jean, Jean who is a man that she ends up sleeping with, um, because this is a tiny plot spoiler, but whatever. Um, Julian goes to prison to two thirds of the way through the book, so she has to survive on her own, and so she basically lives. Meets Jean, who is a John old Jean Jean Jean, and he's the first uh, the first guy that she's ever uh, allowed to bed her more than once yes exactly and then she moves in with him but she carries on working as a sex worker yeah (laughs) and she so she says jean who has made trips to madagascar calls me my little antadroi antadroi yeah that the whores cheer me oh that beautiful black girl so she is always seeing her through seeing herself through others eyes and when she visits Annie, who's one of her safe houses, Annie's little girl, um, she describes her rediscovering Anne under the black skin as if there's a divorce between herself and her skin or how she's seen by others. You know, what what completely didn't even occur to me the entire time that we were trying to sort of like figure out how her race is significant is that she was given up when she was born. And I wonder if that like initial um, sort of like uh, like uh, you know offense against the, the the norm is what sort of affects her race for the rest of her life. Like it might not be something on the day to day where people are like you're black, but it was that her parents couldn't because I I didn't see anything about her parents or why she well, was well yeah because she was adopted into a white family yeah as but well her, she was Algerian and French Canadian and so if you imagine like. What was it? What year was she? 1937, I think mm-hmm. she was yeah. born. Like, probably wasn't going to work out with the nuclear family. <laughs> yeah. Um, but who knows? I actually don't know that much about that time period. Um, Algerian, French. Well, th- I mean, there's the War of Independence, but I don't know when that is, so yeah, I'm not going to pretend to be an authority. I'm, I'm not going to... I don't... I I'm going to assume that it wasn't all copacetic. No, no, yeah. no. It was, there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of racism. It was tough. So maybe it's that initial initial <clears throat> trauma that sort of makes who, her, her race part of... Not that her race mm. needs to be part of the novel, but it just seems, you know... It just seems bizarre that it's left out in such a way. Because in 2018, it matters to a, a person. Yeah, and it feels very um, out, out of date in that way. Com- like compared with current conversations around race and that being far more at the forefront of people's minds and their concerns right. which is also what's so good about this right? yeah yeah because she she's she's not like <clears throat> um i wonder do we want to chat a bit about freedom yeah because i feel like that is such a chunky yeah. theme um, and she like escapes from prison only to be trapped again <clears throat> in her own house. Moves, uh, her, yeah. moves from box to box until she dies. Exactly. And she and she describes her beds as little rectangles. And she says, my fate from now on was to go from bed to, to a car seat, from a car seat to a bed, to be put down, lugged around at will by friendly men and strangers who owed me nothing and from whom I had to borrow. Yeah, which is, um, I mean, a horrible fate for anyone. 
I know. I love. I love in the in the first hideout how she calls the bed her rectangle. This is yeah. my rectangle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but it's it's th- that fr- that freedom that she has is now it's kind of if anything more imprisoning because she's been so used to the habitual routines of the prison and I guess it's like what you call it, being institutionalized. So. Uh, she doesn't understand how to live outside of prison immediately after going there and I think the the breaking of her foot is like a perfect metaphor for that because she's completely paralysed in a way by um, the utter freedom you know and it comes with a physical like break when she falls from the prison walls um, yeah yeah I think I think we, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about like domestication mm. also and sort mm. of how institutionalization played a role in what even your understanding of freedom is or like you know what I mean the the prospect yeah. of freedom because she's free but she probably can't leave France because she doesn't have any papers yeah. <laughs> it's like she she knows that she's not really free I mean which is none of us are free yeah I mean <laughs> on the other hand what do you yeah so I guess we'll get into that when we talk about domestication well also and her ankle just means that she can't move so she describes it as a new ball and chain um yeah. <clears throat> talks about lugging it around yeah. yeah like there's a quite a cute one <clears throat> she says dragging my foot like a turtle lugs its shell which is a really odd simile if you think about it because a turtle's shell is its home so she's kind of likening her foot to her home it's kind of something she shelters in and it protects her in some ways because it kind of makes her a helpless vulnerable figure that people need to look after but also it's like I don't know she's dragging it around behind her it's a burden it's heavy um I mean especially for somebody who prizes walking so much and like movement you have to wonder if she was like a on the beat kind of girl, you know what I mean? Like, was she out and about all the time? Was she the one that you, like, call for a day out? You know what I mean? Or or, or is she somebody who's enjoys being confined? Like me. <laughs> <laughs> Preferring a bedroom. But she also talks about when... So I, so I think, you know, what you were saying about it being odd that she compares her ankle to a, a home-like thing none of her homes have ever really been places of shelter or real kind of like you know safety and 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 comfort and when she goes to Pierre's the first or the second kind of place that she goes after after Julian's mother's um Pierre tells her that she's not allowed to say words like prison around his children yeah. and she talks about she's really frustrated and on that on the first evening that they're there all she wants to do is is go to bed but she needs to be polite and sit at the table and have drink after drink when all she wants to do is go and have sex with Julian and then she says something like uh I'd prefer to be (laughs) I'd prefer to be in prison where I can where I can at least speak my mind and now I'm here and I'm just gonna have to stay quiet for the whole time I'm here I can't mention yeah. all of these words yeah. that are part of me and I have to sit here at this fucking table with these people that I hate and she, she says something quite similar in the hospital later she says she has to unlearn words such as like prison yeah. break police which are words that come really naturally to someone who has lived a life of crime I guess mm-hmm. so 
yeah. And I think in 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 like current day prison rhetoric, like you know, they they've somehow like tried to shift towards actual rehabilitation as opposed to incarceration. So it's like you know, you don't say like inmate or like you don't say like con. You know what I mean? Like there's mm-hmm. certain there's certain words that are supposed to be like more productive, like incarcerated and like. I'm not sure. I don't know them, but I can imagine that language is pretty pretty important. Sort of like that. Might like you don't call them cells; you call them rooms, mm. and like, yeah. So hopefully, I mean, I I am I'm I mean I guess in the '60s they weren't really thinking about it. <laughs> they were just like put as many of them in there as you can. Should we talk about the prison now? Actually, yeah. Okay. Cool. So the prison that she uh, was incarcerated in. It looks a bit like a panopticon, which is what I thought when I looked at the bird's eye picture. That um, We will post some pictures of the prison in the story. I haven't seen it. It was one of the first prisons with... Um, so I'll show everybody here so that the radio can see it. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a sort of cross, cross-shaped prison, which sort of influenced how prisons were built... Uh, yeah. For the for the next like century, with like a watchtower in the middle and the sort of right and the, the like an X, star. yeah. So like the central prison tower is able to sort of observe all the actions of the inmates whilst they can't see each other in a way. It, it's very it's it's known for like being really isolating. Mm. Um, so the particular prison that she was in, I didn't know this. So France has had some issues, a lot of issues with uh, prison escapes being super frequent. Not just our Albertine here, like they, it's, um, in, okay, best story I found. In 2003, there was an Italian gangster nicknamed, uh, shit, where is it? Uh, he's nicknamed Nino the Escape King because he has <laughs> successfully freed That's multiple times from prison. So, okay, in 2003, the most important one at the, at the prison where Albertine is, is, uh, writing from, they, it's like a movie. I'm not like trying. Like the light shines on the on the guards' tower, which overlooks the entrance courtyard, and it is shot up with mad AKs, just like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and then the guards die, and then they break in. They find the place where uh, the the cell where Nino, the escape king, cell is, and they blow a hole into the wall with a bazooka no. and rescue him. Wow. For like a couple of years, I think it took them to find him after that. This is 2003 also. <laughs> this is not 1967 anymore. It's a lot more developed than yeah. Albertine's escape. Which I is all, which, Yeah, she was just like, hope I don't die. <laughs> Whoop, there we go. Hopped over the walls. Yeah. And we and we start the book there too, right? We don't even have the okay. I'm gonna jump now. No, it's just start like, on the fall. Yeah. yeah, no, she no. It starts with her like patting herself down, looking to see if she's all right, and she's like, "Oh, I'm fine," and then she's like tries to walk. I was like, "Is this a dream?" Um, yeah, and I, I think that uh, the the prison itself and um, never mind. I forgot what I was gonna say. No, <laughs> but no, but that it's the institutionalization of it. It like gets into her bones. She describes. Um, you can't wash away away overnight several years of clockwork routine and constant dissembling of self. When the body is turned loose, the mind, which up until then had been the only escape, becomes, on the contrary, the slave of mechanisms. So it's like when she actually gets freedom, she describes it as paralysing her. 
and actually it's far less freeing and she adopts all of the um kind of habits of being in an institution but also she just moves from an institution to institution so the hospital as well feels like another kind of prison she's like locked to the bed she has a this kind of um structure around her to keep her foot in place which she can't move i think one of you mentioned earlier about her hospital records yeah so like the hospital records are at the end of their beds but they can't look in them and uh, she has this bit where she really wants to sure i'll read it i not even i not even knowing what my blood type is would love to get my hands on that document but how the time that it's out on the bed is too short and the head nurse is glued to the room simultaneously surveying the hall down which the cortege will come and whatever moves we might be trying to make the chest is not locked but since none of us can walk bribe one of the visitors I mean, it sounds like like she's in prison <laughs> rather than yeah, in a hospital. She's constantly scheming, isn't she? But yeah, that's another like way that it's so relevant to so many issues that we have today in terms mm-hmm. of like super major patriarchies within institutions. Obviously, there's like the prison complex, but also like within medicine, it's just she has that whole bit about um, referring to the doctor as yeah. as the holy <laughs> the holy father. Yeah. yeah. The holy, oh <laughs> Do you have that? Do you have that? Yeah, in yeah. Good, you should read it. It's <laughs> page. So this is quite funny because uh, when we were chatting uh, before we started recording about what we were going to talk about, I said, "Oh, you know, some bits of it are so funny. Like when the bit that I'm going to read, where she refers to this doctor as God the Father, and then Femi took his notes out and he had written funny God the Father, <laughs> but it is. It's hilarious." Um, Okay, yeah, so here it is. Uh, God the Father, um, being the doctor. Oh, here we go. This is where where she starts it. For us, only God the Father exists. The one who baptized the instruments, the one who recreated us with his own fingers or through intermediary fingers. God who charted the course of our operation, chose it from among various techniques, He has studied our x-rays to the very marrow while our bodies reposed, inert, not knowing they were being observed. He judges, cuts, slices, grafts, but we are not allowed in his kitchen. Our meat is confiscated from us. (laughs) And if we should be permitted to use it again someday in the joy that lies ahead, holy efficiency, we shall never know by what means it it got back to us. And she goes on and talks about how when when this doctor comes, he only comes to the hospital three, two or three times a week, and there's a huge uh, kind of operation, no pun intended, uh, involved. So the the cleaners clean everything pristinely under the beds, get get cleaned, and all of the I think all of the patients in her ward are, are women, I think so. yeah. and they're all just sort of waiting on his no every smokes, word. You know, it's like it's very kind of like quite sci-fi like yeah. white yeah. shiny like oh like really odd and i mean all of the him, him is constantly capitalized um yeah. mm. like there's there's a lot of like recognition so we were talking about how she so there's a couple of instances where she sort of refers to the people who have power over her or sort of like mm. control over even just her body not not really her mind as um sort of religious figures there's a point where she calls her saint annie and you know she has kind of she kind of refers to the prison and sort of like 
like a, a, ch- a church of, of sort of, of ref- you know. But it's tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? Yeah. She's like faux faithful. Definitely. It's like constantly poking fun at any um, symbol of authority or, or power. Right. She's so, yes, exactly. And every, you know, yes. And God, God themselves, God. like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, it's just a big joke to her. And it, it, he is basically anyone who, who tells her what to do. Um, and I think that's where you get a lot of Patti Smith, the singer, songwriter, big feminist icon, um, talks about getting a lot of her like feminine fury from, from, uh, Sarazin or Albertine, the writer, and um, her sort of faithlessness. I think that she has a poem which says, Jesus died for our sins but not mine, and that kind of attitude. Another very interesting and super spooky bit in the hospital mm. is the writer, Albertine, seems to prefigure her own death through a description that Anne the character um, writes and it said, and she's describing being anaesthetised and she says and I died, my left hand held in the intern's glove, my right arm stiffened on the armrest as soon as the anaesthetist anaesthetist tricky word, began to push down the plunger of the large syringe of pe- pentothel, I died with an agreeable tingling in my temples without ha- having witnessed the entrance of God. And Albertine, the writer, actually dies from a, an unlicensed anaesthetist. A she, year after this is published, right? A year after mm. this is published. So she writes her own death scene, which is so spooky. And I think that's like, touches on a lot of what makes this book kind of so amazing, um, is the blurred lines between fiction and fact and reality and how things melt into each other and it makes you I I don't know it feels I found it like quite intense sometimes yeah massively (laughs) and her her love interest in the book is Julian and she married Julian and he it seems had you know the same life story as the character in the book it is yeah huge crossover um is it should we talk a little bit about yeah just to add a um a a sort of real life fact here um julian and albertine were married in chains actually in one of the bibliographies i found they were married with with guards by their side so i suppose it was one of those like jerry springer (laughs) prison weddings but like with like you know these really deep artist types. Yeah. And so I guess on their marriage, we can move on to how domesticity is a sort of theme. Yeah, and femininity and um, the domestic spaces. And this relates a lot to her relationships with women. Um, I think, okay, so I'm just going to connect right back to where I was caught off my feet before where we're talking about sort of her whether or not it's her choice to be a sex worker or not and I think that what is what really drove me to that conclusion is that well first of all it seems like the only freedom that you can't have as a you know a prisoner on the run or a prisoner in general is uh, sort of marriage and bliss and children and you know 
domestic bliss, basically. And um, if that's really all we have to look forward to, <laughs> then it's I, quite bleak. I, <laughs> 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 I mean, I really, I don't, I don't. How is that an escape at all? You know what I mean? What's yeah. What's the point of even escaping? You're moving from one. And and like we were saying, the institutionalization is sort of like training somebody to be a sub person, a person who knows how to you know keep themselves alive. There's no sort of like spiritual, emotional, mental su- support or training. You limit in the yourself institution. so that they don't have to. Yeah, but you you know how to clean and you know how mm. to wake up and and you know boil down to it that's all <laughs> domesticity really is it's mm. like cleaning and she and she she keeps it keeps coming up throughout the book that she they want her to clean then uh, when she's at when she's at nini and pierre's they're like if you're really if he's your man you should do his washing yeah <laughs> which she's happy to do then and she, she loves doing his washing. the you know taking care of his shirts and then when he eventually comes back from presumably shagging a million women mm. she's like i've cleaned your shirts julian which is i think really sad mm. but the other the other guy who okay so right back to the so she is offered that escape i'm using air quotes <laughs> escape <laughs> she's offered that escape by a number of johns who fall in love with her at least three throughout the book i think uh men fall in love with her offered to take care of her take her away to get her off the street you know to ask her to stop and she choose she's like nah shut up <laughs> you see it as an as like a kind of empowering yeah i think that she chooses to keep her independence independence yeah. yeah i suppose rejecting domesticity because, because you're either a mother or a whore in this kind of book yeah. and she chooses whore yeah. in that way and i think that relates as well to um the these ideas of like performing femininity so the way that you know she like you were saying jess Nini says, if he's really your husband, you do his washing. So you perform the tasks that signal that you are therefore connected to them. And a and lovely passage um, later on in the book when she's at a later safe house, Annie's, who we've mentioned. She describes Annie, her keeper, getting ready to go and visit her husband who's in prison. Annie is also a reformed sex worker. Yeah. Every Seriously, mother or whore. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and she yeah, knows she's both. a mother. Yeah. Um, but ex-whore turned, yeah. then decided to be a mother because instead. You can change. <laughs> um, and there's a description of her getting ready. So it says, All morning, hour by hour, I've watched emerging from the bathrobe and curlers a harlot. From skinny, her legs become ethereal. Through the arch of the very high heels, the tightness of the slit skirt, the cut of the suit round round the hips, which breaks the angular line of the buttocks, the hair begins to fluff out and shine, the lips grow full and pink, making the teeth seem smaller, with rapid little strokes of the mascara brush, the eyes are ringed with a languorous lushness. Um... And this idea, you there's a lot of women transforming themselves through Anne tanning herself, through her buying new dresses, through this woman Annie putting on all of the makeup and kind of like blossoming out. Uh, I just thought those are quite like very apt descriptions of like performing femininity mm-hmm. that like still apply today. 
I think you're absolutely right as well, Maddie, about the the binary between you're either a, a mother or a whore. And there's a bit where she's describing Nini, who is the real sort of domestic goddess slash maid of uh, the the second safe. Also, <laughs> yeah, massively. Um, and uh, so this this guy. Pedro is uh, being a little bit of a creep and talking about um, and the the protagonist's breasts and saying, I bet you have pretty breasts. And then Nini is in the room and uh, then she says, Nini hasn't had any kids, but I don't think she's ever had breasts even so. How can Pedro apply himself to this girl's arid ch- chest without repulsion? And that's because she plays the, she's not a mother, but she plays the domestic role and and if you're playing that role, then you're not sexy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, completely. Um. And also, like, uh, the again, the casual nature of, of the sex work in this novel. Like, Pedro may or may not be a sex worker also, you know. What yeah. I mean? and, yeah. and also Nini, she acu- you know what I mean? She was like, uh, at a certain point, she was like, I'm sure that when this place was an inn, it was not just an in mm. <laughs> like an hour like per hour in maybe <laughs> is this is this a good time to talk a bit about sex yeah we're talking about sex work let's move let's, let's talk move about in. The, in the last Domestic few minutes let's talk a bit about <laughs> sex yeah there aren't that many descriptions of the sex yeah. despite it being filled with sex um uh, everything's hunky-dory just going along and then suddenly there's a description that they're just like chatting and then she's just like oh and after we made love and there's no Roland I had talked to Julian about her and he would laugh like a fool after we made love and that's just it's just kind of dropped in woman this isn't really given much space she's meant to be meeting a woman called Roland on her birthday for all you know as far as we know she's her 20 I know so young um you know as far as we know she's queer to an extent but that's not given any space really and there's so much sex, but right, and like I said before, you you if you don't read the preface, you spend most of the novel thinking that she must have gone to prison for sex work, but uh, mm. actually, it wasn't the situation at all. Um, uh, yeah, did so? Did you talk? Did we talk about the first the first time that she talks about sex? Yeah, she just says he would laugh after we made love yeah <laughs> deal like the sex is just like so inconsequential to this woman like, and then they have a conversation about it and saved you and she's just like at least you didn't rape me and you're like huh those are the standards um she and and i think that there was some insinuation that like she she developed a relationship there mm. And so who's to say that that sort of grew out of necessity maybe she's just somebody who is you know uh completely and, devil's advocate but but i do there is also something like amazingly tender and sweet about her relationship book is really relaxed very laissez-faire everyone has it it doesn't necessarily rest with julian to a point of like complete dissembling of herself and i think when you remember that that is given far more weight there's this kind of beautiful description of his stint in prison and she says the houses are far away the ground is under our feet like an island it's saint john's eve our kiss is is as harmonious as nature, and that just kind of writes about him with tenderness, even though sex seems to be. The first chapter ends with her saying, um, 
it was the, the, this the possibility that I mean is is like one of the nicest things about the book because dream <laughs> and think that you'll be sort of redeemed by love or, or by that relationship with someone Just else. Say <laughs> <laughs> gotta say oh, it heard and segues the shit right now. Anyone who's uh, over the age of about 17 might want to get on their phones and, and look up who about. But I didn't either. Yeah, Femi didn't either. Um, <laughs> so uh, we uh, are all talking about at the moment. God, I sound so old. All the kids are talking about. Uh, What's a me? <laughs> yeah, Femi had an education on this earlier. Uh, so there are these memes that all the kids are talking about at the moment called starter packs. Do they? I don't I know what a starter know. pack was. <laughs> Femi didn't know. How do you know? I knew. <laughs> Everyone knows. No. I can't. You can't explain what a starter pack is. And it, it's, all, it's all about, so uh, half of it is just the part that a lot of the, the teenagers that I talk to about starter packs, uh, why they like it, uh, instruction manual of how to reinvent yourself. So we were looking at one earlier. <laughs> Cunt. Cunt. Uh, there's a, one of the monologues in the vagina monologues is just uh, someone saying the word cunt over and over again. <laughs> which I, I did when we were at university, so I'm very comfortable with the word. Anyway, so the, the cunt starter pack is like a picture of a, a haircut, a certain pair of trainers, you know, skinny jeans, something like that. And I kind of lost my train of thought, but I think we were talking reinvention and, and youth. And so, and <laughs> sorry, I've had two glasses of wine. Um, and uh, I I suggested earlier um in a very kind of flippant way uh that if Anne was alive today she might be a fan of the starter pack because she seems to be kind of obsessed with reinventing yeah, herself and always like changing her look and and now he'll see me I'll be fresh and I'll be new and I'll be different um and it's also part of her once again untrustworthy perspective because like you said she changes how she perceives things according to the mood that she's in which I kind of love. I feel like... I mean, that that's how we all think about stuff. Yeah. But that's not how, uh, you know... That's not an, an objective way to relay a story. <laughs> I feel like you you were quite frustrated like, with like... I need to like, know what the fuck is going on. Yeah, and actually something <laughs> Kai is quite adamant that we... <laughs> me too. <laughs> but I mean more like you were like, what the fuck is going on? Ranger's tacked halfway through a sentence. It's very lyrical. Also, remember, it's translated. So like sometimes you'll be like... Hmm? words and i'd also really like to count the amount of times she uses like an ellipsis because it is like the dot dot that's what she decides for us is like somebody's saying something and something is happening mm. but i don't care it's her internal monologue but it does make it really difficult to know sort of waves so like you really get lulled into the sort of rhythm of the book yeah. like the, her phrases which sort of what's going on it's too frustrating it's too difficult and you actually lose a lot of the sense because you're trying to be like, wait, wait, who's Roland? What the fuck is going on? Wait, are you meeting Roland? Wait, what? Um, and one of the things that it's Patty Smith does an introduction to it and one of the uh, ways she, she describes the style, and I actually had to ask Femi to tell me what this word meant earlier. I don't know if I'm sure what it yeah. means. But. No, 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 I looked it up, you're right. Um, so, so she describes it, she says, you know, she possesses a unique highbrow poet detective deadpan style. Don't worry, I understood all of those words. But then she says, this poetic perspicacity, 
Which, Femi, can you define it again? I think it's like being, like, having, uh, what did I say? It's like being loquacious, but using too <laughs> Can using you define it using words, easy? Too, using too many words to, like, describe something. No, but like like skirting around the topic in a way by like using too many words. Is that right? I think that's right. And and the example that Patty gives uh, is uh, a quote from the book. I escaped near Easter, but nothing was rising from the dead. Mm. So I think that I think you're right. I hope so. She, she uses ellipses and then she's also like very elliptical in her writing so she leaves things out she doesn't give you key pieces of information she only gives you her impressions and she says for me reality was distorted like everything else i have no desire to know the end this mo- this moment is real and alive i stretch it into eternity so for her it's like the book is a kind of living breathing thing mm. rather than a document that relays a like really clear linear narrative and then julian within it kind of is is her only moment of clarity that is the only thing she's sure of the fog for an instant and then when he goes the fog of reality comes back which is yeah. and also like i mean it's quite nice but like the ending also which <laughs> it <laughs> just talk about every other it thing. sneaks it sneaks up on you so you just like you're like boom is that though i didn't know when the end was coming <laughs> ah. i know i hate could well <laughs> oh i actually have to talk to you <laughs> I think yeah. we're basically Wrapping. we're getting we're getting to the end. Yeah, we're pretty much. That's pretty much where my train of thought ended. We didn't really chat about Patty. Oh, <laughs> I I feel like <laughs> I'd like to get at it. Um, I'm the way you. I can come on future episodes just to say cunt. Um, so yeah, Patty Smith does does the introduction to the book, which is so gushing and effusive and I think such a nice way to to and begin. And also quite confusing like Pat's gets a lot of her style is from um Sarazan. Via- um who left a lot of typos in. Oh so many typos. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was the Kindle. A lot of but I yes yeah, so there's a the beginning of our view about the book which is perhaps it is wrong to speak of oneself while her would I have carried myself with the same swagger or faced adversity with such feminisms have possessed such a biting tongue without Astragal as my guidebook? Um, or Maddie um, told me about the, this show. Uh, but I have, uh, so I, I have read um, Patty's books, so Just Kids and M Train. And reading this, I kind of found myself. Uh, thinking at times oh this is so patty smith of of her to say obviously it was the it was the reverse it was that patty was was influenced but things like um uh how she discusses uh herself and herself being desired without kind of over sexualizing herself i think is something that the patty does a lot and uh how she talks about specific things like coffee and cigarettes um and then Patty Smith wrote a play with with Sam Shepard called Cowboy Mouth, um, which I performed in, and it's saturated with references and I, loads of them I didn't actually understand until this week when I read this book, and I was like, oh, that's why the main character is called Caval after this book, and um, yeah, that's kind of all I wanted to say is that Patty loves her, yeah. we love her. She's basically an underground icon. Yeah. 
you, subculture star. You touch, we didn't talk about alcohol at all. There's loads of booze. <laughs> I think we've been drinking for her. Yeah. <laughs> just to just to clarify, our protagonist is highly intoxicated throughout the entirety yeah, of this I don't novel. Actually, like, she, if she's not, not really intoxicated, sober. she's like in depressed, blinding pain. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where she's like so delirious with Which pain. Links to the style. It feels it's a bit um, in Heron Vice by it. Thomas Pynchon. Like you feel which is a, a book where the character is high the whole time. You feel like you are in this fog mm-hmm. of drunkenness, of intoxication, of impressions, and it's really difficult to distinguish between reality and desire and dreams. That's really true. I didn't think about it in that way before, because, yeah, for loads of the book, like we said earlier, it's really hard to know what's going on the beginning, especially. I was like, fuck, is it all going to be like this? <laughs> but I think it, it is... and. Then I got it. Don't worry. I understood it <laughs> in the end. I swear. Um, uh, but I think I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's maybe supposed to be kind of confusing because she's pissed the whole time. She's kind of confused, I think. And on that note, should we have a drink? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so do you want to give the list yeah. for next week or next month or next like the coming month? So the next episode will actually be with the writer Elaine Castillo. Right. Other who, other part to this amazing new show. Yeah. Maddie. And yeah, the second <laughs> that some of the episodes will be with writers. She's the author of America is not the heart. Um and she'll be talking about her favourite books and we'll release them just before the episode i don't you don't need to i don't think you need to read Not them like release them for free well, or no anything. we'll let you know we'll let you it's know what they are she's gonna she just um oh, we'll send we'll send them out a month in advance but a, but the next episode won't be for another month and then after that we'll be doing another book club but we haven't decided on the book yet i don't think do you have any ideas i got a few ideas okay <laughs> <laughs> all right then <laughs> Probably be like uh, in some way awesome. Yeah. Just like well, this one. I can't be any more specific than that, but it'll be fucking it'll great. Be a good book. And you should read this book. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then listen to this again. <laughs> I will put the book in the No Wave story at some point. Look out for that. Check them constantly. There's also a film of the book, which oh, we have just discussed today. Yeah. None of us have watched it, but we watched the trailer. It looks like a film worth it's watching. Oh. 2015 and 1969, eight, something like 1968, that. yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>